Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. This morning we're looking at a different chapter, at chapter 4, so you may like to turn to it uh, in your own Bibles as we read part of it. It's not such a familiar chapter, but it is a remarkable chapter. Uh, this chapter was written by a Gentile emperor, uh, no doubt with some help from Daniel himself. And it's basically his testimony. The chapter tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's second prophetic dream. And in this dream, he saw a vast tree spreading over the whole globe, bringing shelter and food to nations and to animals. But uh, he tells in his dream that a voice from heaven decreed that the tree would be cut down, leaving only a stump. Nebuchadnezzar eventually uh, called on Daniel to interpret his dream. And Daniel was shocked by what God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream in chapter 2 had been about the rise and fall of world empires. But this second dream was personal. The dream was about Nebuchadnezzar himself. The tree was Nebuchadnezzar. It told Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was going to lose his reason and live like an animal. And eventually, if he turned his eyes to heaven, his sanity would be restored. So let's read the fulfillment of the dream, starting at verse 28 of chapter 37. Sorry, of chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom Uh, endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
praise and extol and honour the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Just notice that last phrase. Those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar sums up the lesson which he had learned through his painful and dramatic experience in this chapter in those final words. Those who walk in pride he is able to to humble. Pride is one of the most destructive faults in a person's character and is particularly dangerous in a ruler, particularly a ruler with extreme power like Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes having power makes a person feel superior to those they are ruling and makes them proud. Other times they've already been proud before they are promoted and they want power. And in whatever sphere of life, from international politics to office politics, when a person with power becomes proud, the consequences for everyone under them can be devastating. How do you cure someone who is proud? There are no tablets you can give, no medical operation you can perform, no psychological training that they can take, which can turn a proud person into a humble person. And yet this was what God achieved in Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. Ruling without without pride is a fundamental challenge for humanity. You remember that God gave Adam and Eve responsibility to govern this earth. And ruling and managing is a fundamental task in humanity's role on earth. Even Nebuchadnezzar's position of authority is described by God in terms very similar to the mission given to Adam and Eve. So how can we, as human beings, fulfill God's, uh, our God-given responsibility to lead and to manage at whatever level of life without becoming proud? If a person in that situation does become proud, there is a solution if we cooperate with God, but it can be painful. So let's look first at Nebuchadnezzar's personal experience of being humbled by God. And then, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, revisit this story at a higher level uh, because it is a picture of what happened to the human race in history much closer to our time, particularly in Europe. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream first describes Nebuchadnezzar and his achievements as God saw them. He was that grand tree that extended over the earth and brought prosperity even to other nations. The influence of Nebuchadnezzar's personal ability and energy uh, was more global than any previous empire but there was a darker side to his empire. From what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27, this prosperity of Babylon had been built on merciless oppression. Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to show mercy to the oppressed. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar one whole year to humble himself. 
but it was to no avail. As Nebuchadnezzar survived Babylon and all that he had achieved, he did not give any credit to God. And this is despite what uh, he had learned from Daniel in his first dream in chapter 2, despite what he had learned from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in chapter 3, despite even what Jeremiah the prophet had said to Nebuchadnezzar in Judea uh, when he was close to Jerusalem about how Nebuchadnezzar had a place in God's plans. All these should have taught Nebuchadnezzar that the power that he had been given was given by God in heaven. And significantly in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar did not give the credit even to his own God uh, that he said he believed in. He had moved beyond his idolatry of chapter 3 and moved beyond the very concept of there being a God to whom he might be accountable. Nebuchadnezzar was now convinced that the credit of building Babylon was entirely his own. Is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power? This was not mere job satisfaction. It was not that feeling that we sometimes have as we survey a job well done. We see here that human reason had moved to a new level, a level which no longer acknowledged any concept of God, any source of power apart from man's own power. This was the epitome of human pride, where humanity exalts itself beyond the very concept of God. Nebuchadnezzar had felt he had every right to oppress others. He reasoned that they were inferior to him. He, as a superior being with supreme power, could do what he wanted with inferior races. <clears throat> now, on the subject of oppression, would you allow me to digress just a little? Uh, in our own country, a long time ago, some cities became very wealthy through the slave trade. Those slave traders who led such merciless oppression were sometimes celebrated through the erection of statues to them. And in recent times, we have seen some of these statues being hauled down. How did you react when you saw that happening? The Bible, of course, has a very different message to those protesters about oppression and a very different answer to oppression. But nevertheless, we should not forget that God hates all oppression, particularly oppression which is driven by a sense of superiority over others. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's sense of superiority was totally counter to God's plan for governing this earth. So God took special measures not only to judge Nebuchadnezzar, but to deliver him from his pride and from his self-exalting mindset, which led to the abuse of his God-given power. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar in a very specific way, and he did it to save both Nebuchadnezzar and the people that he was oppressing. First, God took Nebuchadnezzar's reason from him. Human reason is amazing. We can reason about science, about art, about moral matters, and about spiritual matters. Our ability to reason like this is evidence that we 
are on a totally different level of creation from animals. God is not against human reason, quite the opposite. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, which does so much to challenge idolatry, particularly the idolatry of Babylon, Isaiah starts with this call from God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Notice what God calls us to reason about and has given us the the ability to reason about. It's about sin, about moral matters, and how we can be delivered from sin. Nebuchadnezzar had rejected the need to include moral issues in his life. He felt it only held him back. So Daniel had to urge him in verse 27, break off your sins, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, by practicing righteousness. When a person's pride in their power of reason leads them to discard morals and to move beyond the concept of God, it has serious consequences for their reason. Nebuchadnezzar had to be reminded where his own reasoning faculty came from, and he learned that by losing his reason. He had to experience what happens to a human being when our reason steps beyond the boundaries that God has given us to keep us sane. The result of Nebuchadnezzar losing his reason was that the distinction between his humanity and the animal kingdom was lost. He became like an animal. And if you remove the moral and spiritual dimensions of being a human being, then you're left with little more than an animal. So Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, but God was patient with him. Nebuchadnezzar lived on all fours, like an animal, with his face staring down at the ground for a period of perhaps seven years. But at last he chose to look up. That phrase which he used, I lifted my eyes to heaven, was more than physically raising his eyes to heaven. It was acknowledging that there is someone in heaven, a God who looks down upon us, who rules over the affairs of men, and who is willing and prepared to intervene in people's lives to bring them to their senses. It was only after lifting his eyes to heaven that Nebuchadnezzar's reason was restored to him. The order of that is significant. He did not look uh, to heaven as a result of his reason. It was something much deeper in Nebuchadnezzar that was able to turn to God. But once he acknowledged God, then everything started to make sense again. Sometimes people who have had a good Christian upbringing rebel against all that they've been taught about God. They live in a state of rebellion against the moral and spiritual implications of being human. In that sense, like mere animals, sometimes sophisticated, intelligent, and very nice animals, but nevertheless, almost like animals in God's sight. And God has been known to allow such people to sink low in their life, in their rebellion against all they have been taught. He patiently gives them time, sometimes a lifetime, 
until they lift their eyes to heaven. And when they do, he welcomes them back. They become more complete and more mature than they ever had been before. Just think of the story of the prodigal son and uh, his experience. So we can view chapter 4 then as a personal story of a proud ruler who was delivered from his pride. The result of his pride, we see, was that he became subhuman, became like an animal. But in the end, he was restored and was able to praise God for having humbled him and saved him. Now, for the rest of our time, I'd like to revisit this story at a different level. As I said, we can look at this story as a warning of what can happen to the human race at certain times in our history. I think we have seen something of this same story played out in European history, culminating in the rise of Hitler and the Nazis and the Second World War. And in some ways, the story of Nebuchadnezzar mirrors that period of human history. Now, if you think that's stretching things too far, let me just take a a moment to explain. (coughs) Hitler believed that the German people were the super race the next stage in human evolution. He despised what he regarded as inferior races, such as the Jews and the Russian Slavs, and he was quite prepared to try to exterminate them. The result of his ideology was that the Nazis perpetrated acts so horrific that we could only describe them as subhuman. They became like animals. In the end, Hitler, and Nazi Germany were destroyed. All they stood for was swept away by the Russians and by the Allies. And after seven years of war, a new humbled Germany emerged, which lived to grow strong and generally more healthy than the previous arrogant Germany had been. Now, what was it that enabled Hitler to capture the hearts of so many people in Germany at that time, including, I have to say, many Christians. Protestant Christians in Germany generally supported Hitler. Hitler's ideas were no sudden outburst of something new. Uh, They were the culmination of a dark movement which had been emerging and developing, particularly in Germany, over centuries. Now, forgive me if I seem to be talking history here rather than the Bible, but I think it gives us insight into how the book of Daniel uh, reveals history uh, and better than any historian can. Now, I want to suggest that the rise and destruction of Hitler and of Nazis was the sixth and final stage of the slow descent of European humanity into madness. And for the first stage, I think we actually have to go back a couple of hundred years uh, or more to a time when there was a revolution in science. Uh, This so-called scientific revolution (coughs) was actually led by many brilliant Christian scientists like Isaac Newton, who brought the world out of a very dark and confused uh, world into a world Uh, which was much more rational and understandable. 
Things which had previously been mysteries, like the movement of the planets, could now be explained by human reason and mathematics without resorting to miracles or divine intervention. Now, there was nothing wrong with that as far as it went. But the second stage of this process was a period of time called the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, starting around the middle of the 1700s. Philosophers at that time were inspired by the success of science in explaining mysteries like planetary motion, but they then started to speculate beyond science. They said this was only the start, and they claimed that one day everything would be explained by human reason without the need to involve a divine creator. Now, that was not science. That was not a scientific claim. And up to this point in history, there had been no conflict between science and the Bible. But this philosophical leap to claim that everything, absolutely everything, could be explained by science, with no need to involve a creator, obviously came into conflict with the Bible. So you would have thought with this emerging uh, in Germany, the biblical scholars in Germany, the home of the Reformation, you would have thought that scholars, biblical scholars in Germany would have been at the forefront of opposing this new philosophy. But sad to say, quite the opposite happened. In our third stage, the start of the 1800s saw the emergence of a new school of liberal biblical scholarship, so-called scholarship. German theologians in the early 1800s wanted to be part of this new age of reason, this new movement. So they proposed a radically new way to view the Bible. They said, we have to ditch everything that's miraculous. Uh, they ditched uh, all the claims with absolutely no evidence all the accounts of anything miraculous in the Bible. They said these had been added later to give the Bible and Christianity more credibility in the eyes of gullible, unscientific people. For example, they said, we should not think that the miracle stories which Jesus did actually happened. They were just stories to illustrate a spiritual truth, and it is this deeper spiritual truth which we should look for and focus on. Now, one embarrassing problem they had to deal with was the prophecies of the Old Testament, which we know from history had been very accurately fulfilled. The book of Daniel was one of the greatest challenges because of the accuracy of Daniel's later predictions. And to get round this problem, the German liberal scholars simply proposed a new principle of biblical interpretation. They said that since nothing is miraculous by definition, the prophecies must have been written after the events actually happened. So the book of Daniel, they said, was not written by Daniel himself. It was written much later, after all the events that he predicted had actually happened, perhaps around 160 AD, sorry, 160 BC. Now, there was absolutely no evidence for this. It was driven entirely by their desire to be compatible with the age of reason, the Enlightenment. And they extended this then to uh, many of the other historical books in the Old Testament, and they said that these were written 
for political reasons after the exile. And that the Old Testament, as we have it, was really uh, a collection of bits and pieces put together after the exile uh, and sewn to get stitched together by unknown editors and redactors. And the effect of this new liberal view of Scripture was to rob the Bible of its authority in the church and in society. Because once you start to accept that parts of the Bible were added much later by unknown editors, then you can leave out anything you want if it conflicts with the spirit of the age or with your own lifestyle. What happened next? Well, the fourth key development in European thinking was Darwin's theory of evolution. He published his book in 1859 with the, the first title, The Origin of the Species, but he gave it a secondary title in his first edition. He called it The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. That's what he called his original book. Darwin was an extreme racist inspired by his theory of evolution. Here's a quote from his later book, The Descent of Man. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. Now that is Charles Darwin. And you can see how his theory was preparing the ground for Nazi ideology by giving a scientific basis for justifying the Holocaust. The other major contribution, if you call it, of Darwin to this process was to remove the distinction between being a human being and being an animal. Man is just an animal, Darwin told us. And God has since taught Europe what he taught Nebuchadnezzar, that if you do away with God, if you set yourself above God, that God gives you over to living like a brute beast. Now, the fifth stage uh, in the preparation for Hitler was the teaching of a particular German philosopher called Nietzsche. You may have heard of him. Nietzsche believed that the human race was being held back in its upward trajectory, by the upward evolutionary trajectory, by the Judeo-Christian teaching about morality and justice. The Bible's teaching, Nietzsche argued, produced guilt which kept people weak. The Bible taught that even those with power were subject to the law. And Nietzsche said, this is a bad thing. This is holding humanity back. It is the strong, those with power in society, who were to become the next stage in evolution, what Nietzsche called overman or superman. Nietzsche described the coming Superman as like a glorious beast which had to be unleashed from any restraint. And Nietzsche gloried in the brutality of beasts of prey as a picture of what the new humanity should be. And since God's morals, laws and God's standards of justice were holding this back, Nietzsche argued strongly against Christianity and the Bible had to be rejected. Now, Nietzsche died uh, not too old, but his sister became the custodian of his writings and she became an ardent Nazi supporter. And Hitler is known to have visited uh, 
the archive of Nietzsche's writings on several occasions. So you can see how the fundamental ideas behind Nazi ideology and Hitler's Mein Kampf were being prepared well in advance. Now, I'm just going to end by making three quick final points about this observation, and again, in the light of Nebuchadnezzar's experience. The first is that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 was a prototype of what has happened at certain times in human history since. The second point is that not only is the story of Nebuchadnezzar a prototype of recent history, it is a prototype of something much bigger and much more frightening in the future before Christ returns to rule. There is coming a time when the human race will be led astray by someone called the man of sin or antichrist, a new Nebuchadnezzar figure or a new and worse Hitler. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 describes how such a man in his pride will set himself above everything that is called God, but he will be humbled. And the books of Daniel and Revelation foretell a seven-year period when the world will be ruled by a figure described as a beast. It will be horrendous time. We don't have to go into it. We don't have time to go into it now, but uh, perhaps some other time. My third and perhaps most practical point uh, and implication of this is to ask you, which of these six stages do you think was the most crucial? I think it was the third stage, the undermining of the authority of Scripture by liberal scholars. If German Christians had held true to the authority of Scripture, they would have been able to stand against and argue against the teachings of Nietzsche and Darwin and Hitler. But by the time these came along, the church had already compromised, had already thrown away the only weapon they had to oppose these ideologies, which is the authority of Scripture. So that when Hitler came to power, Protestant Christians generally welcomed him and accepted his ideology. If the German church had rejected the liberal theologians and scholars a hundred years before Hitler, it is possible that Hitler would never have come to power. And the reason I stress this is that even 200 years after those German theologians first put forward their radical liberal ideas about scripture, this view is still the predominant view of the Bible promoted by academic scholars today. Even though their claims have been shown to have no foundation by 200 years of careful research. And more worryingly, I've noticed that this liberal view of scripture is gradually becoming accepted even among some evangelical respected biblical scholars and Bible teachers. We should never forget what history teaches us. History tells us, firstly, that the motivation in accepting this view of Scripture is not based on evidence, but on the desire to conform to the spirit of the age. And nothing much has changed, sadly. If we want to be a bulwark in society against whatever trendy and destructive ideas and ideologies come sweeping through society, the first thing we need to be sure about is that we uphold the authority of Scripture, the integrity 
of the Bible. We need to live under its authority ourselves personally and we need to accept and to teach its authority in our church and in our teaching and in our practices. I'm personally grateful that our church for generations has always sought to do this. But if the church in the West continues to concede this ground, then the lessons of history and of Nebuchadnezzar should be a warning to us about the tragic implications for society and indeed for the human race of undermining the authority of Scripture. Let's just take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having recorded and preserved for us your infallible word. We thank you that its understanding of humanity is so up-to-date. And we thank you that the practical lessons and challenges are every bit as important today as they, were in, as they were in the time of Daniel. We pray particularly for our young people who are facing the onslaught of ideologies and so-called scholarly theories which would seek to attack their faith in the Lord Jesus and in Scripture itself. We pray that they would be strong, that they would be uh, honest and careful in their own thinking and research of these matters. And we pray that they would continue to uphold the truth of Scripture and to uphold the gospel in a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.